Thank you, Brian. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word and are not already open there, feel free to open to uh, John chapter 16. We're going to be there today. We're going to look at this passage. And as you're turning there, I want to take your minds back to something you probably learned about growing up in Sunday school or something you might have seen on Veggie Tales. And that is the story of David and Goliath. If you remember, Israel was in this battle with the Philistines, and there was this big valley, and the Philistine leader, the Philistine, the greatest soldier they had, stood up and wanted to take one-on-one. He said, why do we need all these people to suffer and die? Let me just go mano a mano with your best and me, and whoever wins, everybody wins. And so no, none, of the, none of the Israelites wanted to jump in and do that. And then finally, David, of course, he's this man of worship. He's this man of faith. He's this man who has torn apart bears and lions with his hands. He said, yeah, let me at him. Let me go. And so somehow he got an audience with King Saul. And King Saul said, I, 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 okay. And so Saul said, here's my armor. Why don't you put it on? And here's my sword, and why don't you put that in your hand? And David tried to put it on, and the armor didn't fit. And David tried the sword, and the sword was unwieldy in his hands because he was used to something different. And so as he was going into this battle, he chose two specific resources that he was very well familiar with, a sling and a few stones. And the right resources in his hands were able to give him victory over this giant. And I bring that up today because today as we're looking at Jesus' last will and testament, his farewell discourse, we're getting to really the end. This is the last section of what Jesus is communicating to his disciples. And he's, as he's doing this, he's talking about, I think, resources for the mission, much like the sling and stones were for Um, for David, so too what Jesus is communicating today in, in this passage are the resources that he and the Father are giving us for the mission that God has placed before us or before his followers. So let me take us back just for a few moments kind of to catch us up because this is now part five in Jesus' last will and testament. It's been a long couple of chapters. It's been now five weeks of looking at this. And and so in the first one, Jesus really tried to communicate, not tried, he did communicate, disciples, here's what you can expect. You can expect that I'm leaving. You can expect uh, that I'm expecting you to love one another I'm expecting you to believe in me, and I'm expecting you to do greater works than what I did. And then he said, just as every will, every, at least everyone who receives or reads a will or hears about it wants the bequeathments, right? We want those gifts. And so Jesus said, I'm going to give you some things. I'm going to give you comfort. I'm going to give you hope. And then he communicates the one thing that he, over and over, in fact, we're going to see today is the fourth time he says this, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. So we saw in that first week, these are the expectations that Jesus had for his followers. In the second one, Jesus talked about obedience. He said, this is how you demonstrate your love for me, by obeying my commandments. And I'll send the Holy Spirit, and he will help you obey, and he will instruct you. 
And then we saw in the third week what it means to be connected to the vine, what the vine life is like. And we saw that it has, it has two requirements. One is pruning and one is connection. We can't bear fruit unless we're connected to the vine. We also can't bear fruit unless we receive a little bit of pruning, which sometimes is painful. But we also saw that the vine life results in fruit, in love, as our love is demonstrated for one another and in answered prayer. And then last week, we looked at some of the difficult expectations, those hard truths that we as Jesus followers get to expect. We get to expect hatred because of him. We get to expect help from the Holy Spirit. There's the third time he references the Holy Spirit. We get to expect hazards along the way, that risk of apostasy or falling away. And we get to risk, or not, we get to expect rather, heaven's plan to prevail. So now we come to this final section in the last will and testament in his farewell discourse, and we learn that Jesus is giving two significant resources for his followers as we pursue the mission that God has for us. As we go through today's outline, we're leveraging some things that Bruce Milne put together, and I, I, I liked what he wrote because it seemed to make sense, and it seemed to be memorable and logical. And so uh, I've reorganized some things, but a lot of the, the root of the outline points come from him. And so first of all, we see that Jesus um, references, he, he reveals the active resources of the Holy Spirit, the active resource of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit, this third person in the Trinity, is not some vague mystical force. He's not like a mist. He's not like Star Wars. He is a person. In fact, it's very interesting when you, if we were to read in Greek, um, we would see that the word used for spirit is actually gender neutral. But all of the modifiers that they use to describe the spirit, because spirit is a breath, it's a wind. But all of the modifiers when they're talking about the Holy Spirit are masculine. He. He always refers to he, the Spirit. He is a person. He is the third person in the Trinity. He is this one that Jesus is giving us in order to help us, actively giving us. So I think, I think there are three things that we get to see. First of all, the first activity that the Holy Spirit does is his coming. The Holy Spirit's coming. Jesus has told his disciples that he's getting ready to go to the Father. And he has already promised that the Comforter or the Helper or the Spirit of Truth would be here. So now this is the fourth time that he's saying the Spirit of Truth, the Holy Spirit is coming. And he communicates this in a rather interesting way. Look at verse 7 in, in your Bibles or, or on the screen in chapter 16, verse 7. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now think about this. These guys have been hanging out with Jesus for three and a half years. He's, he's been telling them for the last couple of hours, I am leaving. I'm going away. And now he's going to tell them, it's a good thing that I'm going away. And is it? I mean, imagine having that companionship with Jesus, that nearness to him. And it's also time and time again, we've read, Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. But Jesus is clearly communicating to them that it is to their advantage, or as some translations say, it is expedient for him to go 
You see, there's this contingency that if Jesus doesn't go, then the Holy Spirit doesn't come. The two are not in the same space at the same time for whatever reason. And that's beyond what I totally understand. The Trinity is three in one, and, and yet Jesus says, I have to go back to the Father in order for the Holy Spirit to come. And it's better that the Holy Spirit comes. See, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all work together in sort of a, a dance. It's like they're, they're in this three-way activity working in our lives, all in sync and in cooperation with one another in part because they are one, but also because they have different roles and functions. One of the early church fathers, a guy named Athanasius, said this. He said, the Son is sent from the Father, so, for he says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And the son sends the spirit saying, if I go away, he says, I will send the paraclete. The son glorifies the father saying, father, I have glorified thee. And the, and the spirit glorifies the son for he says, he shall glorify me. And the son says, the things I heard from the father, I speak unto the world. The spirit takes of the son, he shall take mine, he says, and shall declare it unto you. The Son came in the name of the Father. The Holy Spirit says the Son uh, whom the Father will send in my name. So you have all these things, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together in this beautiful dance of mutual glorification and unified communication. They are one in what they are working to accomplish, and yet they do that in different ways. So the Spirit has come. He has indwelled believers. We, the question is, do we recognize him? How is it better that we have the Holy Spirit with us and Jesus is ascended in heaven? How is that better? Do we assume that the Holy Spirit is only kind of a sometimes help? Or do we assume that the Holy Spirit is actually needed, and we ignore him. But in his coming, we get to see, secondly, the way that the Holy Spirit works, and that is in the Spirit's convicting. We see this in verses 8 to 11. You see, the Spirit won't simply come and be a presence, be that warm fuzzy right next to us, that tingly feeling when worship is just so. No, the Spirit is more than that. He's, Jesus tells us that the Spirit convicts in three different ways, and namely, he convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Look in verses 8 to 11. It says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Notice that the Holy Spirit in his convicting work, he's working in, on convicting. Jesus says his work is out in the world. He's focused outward, outside of the body of Christ in these regards. But let's think about what that, mean, what that convicting word means because there's a, been a lot of debate as I was doing some studies. Some folks say, well, what is the convicting work that he's doing? Well, that word in Greek shows up about 18 different times in the New Testament. And Don Carson notes that every time the word shows up, all of those 18 times, that convicting word is not just exposure. It's not just saying, hey, look, 
It's, it's, it's an exposure for the purpose of repentance. It's an exposure for the summons to repent. The Spirit's simply not pointing something out, but he's pointing something out to produce change in our lives, change in humanity. So the Spirit's work begins with convicting the world of sin because they don't believe in Jesus. You see, Jesus is that perfect human. He is the one who perfectly fulfilled all of God's righteous decrees. He is the perfect sacrifice. And when we compare ourselves to Christ, we look like filthy dirtbags. We need that perfect comparison, and the Holy Spirit helps us to see that. Carson notes that if they did believe in Jesus, they would believe his statements about their guilt and turn to him. But as it is, their unbelief brings not only condemnation, but willful ignorance of their need. Because Jesus has said things about us, and yet some of us have refused to hear the Holy Spirit is coming to help us understand that we need to make a change. In order for us to come to faith, to receive Jesus' perfect gift of forgiveness and salvation, we have to recognize our sin. And so, friend, I want to ask you, if you've not yet joined into a relationship with Jesus Christ, have you been convicted of your sin? Have you come to the reality that you have a sin problem? Because we all do. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Have you been convicted and have you seen the Holy Spirit, seen what Jesus has done for you and turned and repented and trusted in him? And if you've not, let me know. I'd love to open scripture with you and help you see what it means to believe. But beloved brother and sister in Christ, while Jesus is talking about the Spirit's work in the world, about the Spirit's work among outsiders, we have to recognize that the Spirit is with us and he is in us, which means that some of that convicting work he's doing to us, some of that convicting work he is doing in our lives. And while we are covered by Jesus' sacrifice, we are sealed forever in him, we still willfully rebel against God. And when the Holy Spirit convicts, are we paying attention? Are we repenting? Are we turning? A couple of months ago, I um, had an opportunity to buy a car that I've wanted for so long. I must admit I coveted this car for a very long time. And Danielle and I had a conversation with it was a we got a really good deal on this car and we talked about it and there were some insecurities and we decided to move forward and yet in my spirit I knew it was not the right move. I could hear the Holy Spirit saying, "Don't do this. Don't do this." And yet I ignored it. So we bought the car. I loved it, drove it around put a lot of money into making, getting better tires for it and all this stuff. And then the more I looked at our budget, the more I realized it was a really stupid decision. And it wasn't just that I had led our family into this, but I had willfully rebelled against the Spirit of God saying, don't do this. So I had to repent of my sin. And it was hard. Hard to admit 
that I was wrong. So we sold the car three months after we bought it. Actually, I ended up selling the other car that I had too. So now we are down to one car in Maryland and one car in Indiana. So if you see me walking around or riding a bike, that's because all of my automotive transportation is being taken up by the women in my household. But I say that not, not so you can say, oh, Joel, you're so cool, but I want, you to, I want you to see that I screwed up. And it took the Holy Spirit of God to say, Joel, you dummy. You need to repent. But are we paying attention when the Spirit says things like that to us? But in addition to con- the, the work of convicting in the world, Jesus says, this, the, convicting the world of sin, rather, Jesus says the, the Spirit convicts the world of righteousness. Because Jesus goes to the Father, and it almost seems like something that doesn't make sense, that kind of a non sequitur, things, you know, one thing should go after another. It doesn't make sense when I read this, at least at first blush, that the Holy Spirit's going to convict of righteousness because Jesus is with the Father. But again, if we look at how Jesus lived his life on earth, he demonstrated perfect righteousness. He became that perfect line. He became that level standard. And we have to recognize that everything else is off base. When I was in middle school, I had to take a home ec class. I don't know if they still do that today, but I learned how to cook. I learned how to sew. I learned how to clean. Not really. Um, But one of the things I do remember from this home ec class, my teacher saying, now when you're filling up a measuring cup, make sure the cup is on a level surface. Because if you're filling it up and it's not on a level surface, you'll never have the right perspective. Well, I've been living that recently. We've been, I've been uh, making foods that require me to add water. So I'm holding this glass. I should have brought this in today. I'm holding this glass measuring cup and trying to fill it up to the proper amount, and the sink is going in, and I'm looking, and yeah, it looks good. And then I put it on the counter right next to me, and I'm off by a couple of ounces. So I go back, and, and then I'm off by a couple ounces the other way. And, and it's just not working because my perspective, my standard is off kilter. My, I'm looking at it incorrectly. And so I think one of the things the Holy Spirit does is he helps us see that Jesus is that level plane. He is that pure standard and that our righteousness is always going to look a bit off because he is that perfect picture of righteousness. We don't realize that we're standing on unrighteous ground, unrighteous crooked ground, and our our eyes are are never going to see it the way that Jesus sees it. So the Spirit works of convicting and righteousness. But thirdly, the Holy Spirit works in convicting of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. In fact, it's almost as though he's saying the ruler of this world is already judged. Satan's end is fixed. His demise is certain. And yet the execution of God's plan, his judgment plan, hasn't happened yet. So we get to wait in this in-between time. The judgment has been set, but the execution, the fulfillment of that is still coming. And there's a lot of grand work that the Spirit's been doing over the centuries and will continue to do in the future. Scripture does reveal that the fulfillment of what Jesus talked about here happened actually just a few weeks after what the Holy Spirit, after what he said. In fact, it happened at Pentecost. 
One of the authors I looked at, a, a guy named Joel Beek, he references it this way. So Jesus, he says, hey, I'm going to send the paraclete. I'm going to send this. And then they get to see a full fulfillment of it when Peter preaches his sermon at Pentecost. Watch what happens here. You can see it on, on the slide. So Jesus says the advocate will convict the world of sin because of its unbelief. So the Holy Spirit's going to convict of sin. Well, look at what happened at Pentecost. Jesus, or not Jesus, Peter um, communicated that they had crucified the Lord and Christ pierced them um, to the heart so that they cried, what shall we do? So the Spirit would come, and, and in Peter's sermon, they were convicted to a response. They were convicted of their sin. Secondly, the Holy Spirit would convict the world of righteousness because it no longer sees Jesus after he has gone to the Father. And in Peter's sermon, Jesus is God's Holy One, whom he raised from the dead and exalted to pour out the Holy Spirit. So you see that Holy Spirit working among everyone. And then thirdly, the advocate will convict the world of that judgment that has fallen on its ruler. In Peter's sermon, Christ's death was foreordained by God, issuing his victory over death and his exaltation to God's right hand. So you see these things kind of coming together. Jesus is exalted now, finished his work at the seat of judgment, victorious. And it's the Holy Spirit that is convicting of that judgment. In addition to the Spirit's active work of coming and convicting, Jesus communicates thirdly that the, the active work of the Spirit's counseling or guiding Verses 13 to 15, he says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has in my name, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So just as a legal counselor might guide us through a tricky series of courtroom proceedings or a wilderness guide might lead us down a trail that is otherwise unfamiliar to us, so too the Holy Spirit will counsel or guide us through all that the Father and the Son want us to know, expect, and experience. See, the Holy Spirit is an active resource in our lives. And again, we have to ask the question, are we paying attention? Are we aware? Are we tuned in to how the Spirit is speaking? Are we listening to that still, small voice? In the face of the adversity that we discussed last week, we will have the Spirit as an active resource. But in addition to that, Jesus communicates one other resource that we have, and that is the accomplished resources of the Son the accomplished resources of the Son. Jesus has been telling his disciples that he would be leaving. He's returning to the Father. But before he does, he has to leave through the pain and agony of the cross. And yet he communicates that this loss is not without its gain. You see, we get, first of all, to see the Son's presence. And Jesus communicates this in some interesting ways in verse 16. He says, a little while you will see me no longer, and again in a little while you will see me. Some have wondered if he's talking about his, his ascension and that he's going away for a long time, and then he's going to come back, and that that's what he's talking about. The second coming, if you will which has been now 2,000 years in the making. But it seems more likely that Jesus is really talking about his death 
and resurrection that would happen just a few days later. Notice what he says in verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament and the world will rejoice. And that would happen in a matter of hours as Jesus goes to the cross and his disciples are scattered and they are weeping and mourning because their Savior is dead. And yet, and Jesus continues, he said, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Elsewhere in this passage, he said, and no one will be able to take that away because he has conquered the grave. His death and burial will become a time of mourning and lament for the disciples, but it would also and be a time of rejoicing for the world. But both would be short-lived because Jesus would, re- would be returned in his physical body to his disciples. There would be no turning back. In fact, a few days later, he says, so now you will have sorrow, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. You see, now that Jesus has risen from the dead and he did so in person, he has accomplished that hope of eternal life. He has accomplished that that thing that believers have longed for for thousands of years now. We get to look back on that day in confidence and say with the Apostle Paul and the, and the prophets Isaiah and Hosea, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Jesus' resurrection, his bodily presence with his disciples is a gift of confidence. It's a a resource of confidence. But secondly, we also see the son's provision. The son's provision. Specifically, Jesus is providing direct access to the father. We don't need a priest. We don't need a mediator. We, We don't need rituals. We get to go directly to him through the son. Look at verses 23 to 24. He says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of my Father in my name, he will give it to you. And until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy will be full. And again, he reiterates a few verses later, in that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and, and, and have believed that I came from God. You see, a few weeks ago, if you remember, we talked about this idea of praying in Jesus' name. And I told you I was a bit convicted about that because I wonder, in, it was all about that connecting. We were talking about the vine life being connected to Jesus. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, are we truly in all that he embodies or are we being selfish in this request? Well, there's another element to this that I didn't think about back then. But that praying in Jesus' name, because ultimately what's happened over the last couple weeks, and it's so funny. So we're praying as a family at dinner, and we're praying, thanking God for the food and praying for a few other things. And then right at the close of our prayer, whoever's praying will pause for a moment. And then we don't know, are they going to say, in Jesus' name, or just say, amen? Because it's truly, it's been convicting. Are we in him as we're praying? But here's the other thing that I think we need to think about. A heart check is important, but there's another aspect of praying in Jesus' name that Jesus brings up here. 
And that is that we, when we pray in his name, it is through that relationship. It's as though Jesus is the conduit through which we're praying to the Father. Because he has risen from the dead, because he has won this life, this relationship for us, every prayer we pray to the Father is in Jesus' name. So, yeah, we need to check our hearts. But we have the confidence of knowing that, yes, we can close every prayer within Jesus' name because Jesus has purchased that relationship for us. Bruce Milne comments, he said, the addition of Jesus in Jesus' name is not some pedantic formality. It witnesses to the only basis of all intercession, namely the earthly sacrifice and heavenly intercession of Jesus by which alone to all eternity we may draw near to the throne of heavenly grace. So by rising from the dead, Jesus accomplished what no one else could by returning physical presence to the disciples. And we have the hope of his return. He also provided us a means of having access to the Father. But the third accomplished resource that Jesus has is the Son's position. You see, from their vantage point, from the disciples' point of view, Jesus would be arrested later that night. He would be tried and crucified, and three days later, he would rise again from the dead. And about a month after that, he would ascend to the Father and be seated at the right hand of God. As it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God in a position of victory. His work was done. His one act of obedience brought victory over sin and death and brought the hope of eternal life. John 16, 32 to 33 says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I, I, I have said these things to you, that in me, in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take Heart, I have overcome the world. I see, even though he's a couple of days from fully realizing this victory, he talks about it as a sure thing. He talks about it as this is done. In fact, we'll get to read in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter 19 when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. Don Carson appropriately comments, Jesus has conquered the world in the same way that he defeated the prince of this world, Jesus' point is that by his death, he made the world's opposition pointless and beggarly. The decisive battle has been waged and won. The world continues its wretched attacks, but those who are in Christ share the victory he has won. They cannot be harmed by the world's evils, and they know who triumphs in the end. From this, they take heart and they begin to share in his peace. So as we close, as we walk through this varied journey that God has ordained to us, ordained for us, we get to walk in the confidence of knowing all that Jesus has accomplished. He did it. It is his victory. He overcame. His victory gets to be shared with us who believe in him by faith. And our victory has been sealed in Jesus Christ. 
And yet our victory is also a work in progress. Jesus has accomplished it, but we don't get the full realization until our reunion with him. So that to that end, we have the active participation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He came and is with you, brother and sister in Christ. Rest in that confidence. He is working in the world, convicting of sin, righteousness, and the coming judgment. And as we proclaim the good news, we can have confidence that he is working his convicting. Even before we speak, he is working. But he is also counseling and guiding us. The spirit is active among us. Let's pray.